every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This is executive producer Ben Wilson, and on today's episode, we welcome Tracy Eiler, CMO of Inside View. On this episode, Tracy discusses the importance of optimizing your CRM, how to turn customers into advocates, how she has used an unorthodox approach to sales development to drive growth at Inside View, and much more. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of Demand Gen Visionaries and CEO at Caspian Studios. We have special guests coming on today. Tracy, how are you? I'm doing great, Ian, and how are you guys? I am thrilled to have you on. We have done a few interviews and panels and things together in the past, and as we were thinking of this show, who better to bring on than a B2B demand marketing game changer like yourself, top 20 women to watch, all the fun stuff. So we got to know, first question, how did you get your first job in demand gen? This is such a good story. I was 16 years old and I got a job as a uh, sales development rep or you know, BDR in a software company in Ann Arbor, Michigan called ComShare. And I was one of four high school kids and we all went by the pseudonym Chris Kelly because Chris never got sick or went away to college and Chris was nice gender neutral name. And we did all the lead follow-up. And it was a really great job that I, I worked at uh, during the summers and all through college uh, as part-time role. So it gave me a lot of great experience and very early exposure to what you know, lead generation uh, looked like. And this is like 1985 circa, right? So it was a long time ago, but so many things are the same. That's hilarious. So Chris Kelly was like your pseudonym? Yeah, I'll give you a demo. So I would answer the 1-800 hotline phone number because the company did a lot of print advertising and there was this 1-800 number at the bottom. So it was ComShare Marketing. This is Chris Kelly speaking. How may I help you? So that was how we all answered the phone. And, you know, they were inbound leads basically. <laughs> and, you know, we would uh, type in all their lead information into this homegrown CRM that was based in COBOL. And overnight, these response letters would get generated off of the mainframe and then we would get these printed letters that we would stuff in envelopes with product collateral and mail them out. So uh, that was the deal. Well, flash forward to today, you are CMO of InsideView. For our listeners who don't know, can you share a little bit about InsideView? Yeah, InsideView is a B2B SaaS company and we are a B2B data provider that has a number of tools on top of our data platform of accounts and contacts that allow marketers, especially demand marketers, to build targeted lists and enrich their leads, but most importantly, Ian, keep their CRM data quality fresh and clean and complete. And we all know that your lists and your target accounts rule the roost in terms of demand gen effectiveness. So we're right in the heart of that. Let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What I thought we were in the trust tree with 
in the nest, are we not? This is where you can feel honest and trusted and share your deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. Let's start out with, what's your like overall demand gen strategy? Our overall demand gen strategy is really segmented into two components based on the customer and the way that they want to buy. For our small business segment, which is really small business eking into the lower end of mid-market companies with less than a thousand employees, we are almost a hundred percent inbound lead generation oriented with all of the techniques you would expect digital and so on. The component we've added is conversational marketing now so that when visitors come to the website and they're still anonymous, especially, we're able to be present with them in a live conversation kind of wherever they land. So that's the strategy there. And then on our enterprise business where it's very large accounts, we are almost 100% account-based. And I don't use the term ABM anymore. I really think of it as account-based engagement or account-based pursuit because we are so integrated between sales marketing and customer experience. We go account-based not only for new logo pursuit, but also for customer expansion. So that's kind of the overview of the strategy. We can go into a lot more detail, but that's the essence of it. Yeah. And so what does your org structure look like then? Who reports to you? How does it all look? Yeah, well, you know, in terms of being a full-scope CMO, I have the traditional functions, product marketing, which is handling messaging and competitive and so on, customer advocacy, which is its own direct report to me because amplifying our customers and what they say is very important. Third group is demand gen, and that has everything in it from digital to virtual events, live events when we used to do them, all of our email nurture and so on. Fourth team is operations, so marketing ops, and that would be everything from the data itself to also the the running of our systems and tools and all of our metrics and measurement. And then the fifth group is sometimes in marketing and sometimes in sales, which is sales development. So the SDR team, the Chris Kellys of today report into my group, which I'm very passionate about. I really think demand marketers, if there's one takeaway they have from this is they really should think about org structure wise having sales development report into marketing. And if it doesn't, act as if it does and really embrace that leader and all of their processes and so on. That's a whole existing, you know, other conversation we could go into, but I'm very passionate about that. And then the last team is really corporate marketing. So everything that you do, PR and so on, analyst relations, influencer work that makes your company look bigger than life. So that's the the scope of what I'm responsible for. And we will definitely definitely get into a bunch of that sales marketing alignment piece, which is something you know as much as anyone about. So we will get into that later. So in terms of, you know, your product, the market and persona, um, you know, who are the types of folks, uh, what types of accounts, what is the buying committee look like? Yeah, um, it's a really fascinating question. So generally speaking, we talk to the folks that are in marketing, people like me and people in demand gen. Second group would be operations. So marketing ops, sales ops, and sometimes those teams are aligned with their functions and sometimes they're in a central location. It just really depends on the account. And then the third team would be sales itself. So the sales leader and their leaders, because we do have an app that is used by sales reps uh, to do account research. So typically one of those three teams will bring us in. In fact, we're just in the middle of doing an inbound lead analysis because I really want to know who's currently shopping the most. And the buying committee is typically those teams that I mentioned, marketing, ops, and sales, 
But increasingly, especially in COVID lockdown and the tight economy, procurement's in the mix, unfortunately, which of course complicates everything and increases the need for us to have really, really good value messaging. And so as you're trying to engage those accounts and thinking about being topical and relevant and interesting, how does your org match those accounts? Like is sales have, like you said, an account-based, like an engagement strategy and then your demand gen team falls into, you know, supporting certain pieces of that or how does that work? We have a very collaborative process with our sales team and our customer success organization because we are looking at both new logo pursuit and customer expansion. We have a very big customer base and we have a whole product platform and a number of applications that customers can buy. So let's talk about the customer side first. On the customer side, we have good segmentation where we know what does that customer have deployed so far? And then what's the opportunity to expand the conversation? And typically we're deployed in a sales department and we are looking then to grow in marketing and get into the ops focus because we have a whole data management product line that is really something that, you know, CRM data quality is something that the ops folks typically own, but it is at the root of impact to sales and marketing effectiveness. So that buyer group across those three, we're really trying to develop engaging content that talks about the value of CRM data quality. In fact, I did a survey earlier this year, which was round three of my sales and marketing alignment research that fueled my book. You guys, uh, we have talked about that before on various interviews you and I have done aligned to achieve, which came out in 2016. And so round three of that market research included a lot of questions around data and having a data strategy. And one of the really interesting findings was across all the personas we talked about, every one of them ranked CRM data quality improvement as one of their highest priorities, which was cool in terms of our market opportunity. But what was puzzling is when you asked those same folks, and what are you doing about this? More than 60% of them were either doing manual cleanup work or nothing at all in terms of improving their data. So that's a conundrum to me, and it's at the heart of our conversation strategy that we're having with accounts, which is uncovering the pain, amplifying what can be done in terms of improving, and then helping them see that there really is a path to improvement that we can help them with. It's not that hard. It's not that expensive. It's actually something that will reap benefits. So that's kind of our whole content strategy is woven around those concepts. Yeah. And could you walk me through like the, you know, for a customer that is leveraging that, that goes from like prospect to customer, what does that six month look back? How does that look? Let's talk about that in the context of inbound and then our account base. On the inbound side, typically we'll get an inbound lead from someone who's doing research on CRM data quality. And of course, it's always an easier conversation when you're dealing with someone who's already shopping, aside from the fact that they stay anonymous for so long, of course. But we will typically engage them in a conversation that says, hey, what's going on with your data quality right now? Um, Have you quantified what's wrong and what the impact is. And if they haven't, which oftentimes they are having trouble quantifying, they just know it's a problem. We will go in with a number of ROI tools that we've developed to really help them uncover and unpack the impact of dirty data is having in their organization. And that's everything from sales efficiency and effectiveness to territory planning. And, and ultimately, importantly, do they have a good target account strategy themselves that's well thought out, where they really have some um, confidence in the accounts that they are selecting? On um, the target account side, you know, we may or may not have a relationship. And I hate that, you know, I hate it when demand marketers talk about 
cold calling or sales reps talk about cold calling. I just don't think that exists anymore, right? If marketers are doing their job, we are warming up an audience and reaching out to them and getting in front of them in a variety of ways so that when we do raise issues, we're, we're doing it with content or bait, as I like to think of it as when I'm talking internally, that's really going to wake them up and show them that we are a trusted advisor inside you and can really help them. We will typically then do, once we get the early conversation going and, and talk early about ROI, show them the possibilities, we'll typically do a data assessment where we will take a sample of their CRM data and do a diagnostic, do a health check for them, which is very popular. Everybody kind of wants to know how bad is it. It's one of those things that everyone in the company typically will say, oh, my data is terrible, but they don't really know how bad it is. So we'll give them an idea of how bad it is and then what it would take to enrich all their accounts and get all their firmographics up to date and even weave in things like intent data, which is becoming such an important part of you know, the demand gen toolbox these days. After we do that data assessment, then we'll get very much into sometimes a proof of concept if it's a very large account, but more often than not, then we will work on deploying our solution for them. And sometimes that'll start with a professional services cleanup if it's a really big account with you know lots of complexity. But more often than not, we can get in there with our data integrity product and really start showing value very early. Over time, then of course, we make sure that they are getting all the value out of it because that's the only way you earn the right to upsell and that's the only way you earn the right to get them to be an advocate. And those are steps that I think sometimes marketers, I don't want to say we forget about, but we're so used to filling the top of the funnel and going after new logo that we don't think about our role post-sale. And I think that's really changing for demand marketers these days. I 100% agree. I think that so much of what happens post-sale is so critical for marketers to understand and to be able to market effectively because it's like now, especially with technology, right? Now you just have so many, whether it's freemium product or trial-driven products or things like that, that it's just pretty ingrained into our DNA that it's like not having this massive integration, not having this massive multi-year you know, rollout and all that sort of stuff. So people know that they can quit their SaaS products a lot easier than ever now. So it's like, you know, that's, I mean, I think it's baked into pretty much every buying decision. It's like, All right, I know I can get out of this in like a reasonable amount of time. So if that's the case, as the demand gen person, you need to make sure that they still continue needing that product through implementation, through, you know, the point where they're going back to their leadership and saying like, hey, we just knocked it out of the park by buying inside view. Yeah, and if you've got, you know, like we do, average selling prices of fifty dollars to $100,000, you really want to protect that renewal. And you're typically on a cadence every quarter of doing quarterly business review with your, your CX folks. Um, and, you know, you're getting that opportunity to get in front of the customer again and again. I do have a suggestion for your audience of, of a technique that I like to do periodically. I do this as CMO, secret shopping, where I will pretend to be a prospect. I will go through as if I'm shopping and I'll look at us and our competitors and really come back to the company with um, a look at how we are stacking up and how we appear online, especially. You know, we do competitive research so often that's deep on product, but we don't pay attention to the content message and the website experience and, you know, do they offer a trial or not? Do they offer a freemium or not? And so on. And then the other thing to do is a post-sale secret shopper where you really audit okay, the minute that customer signs, now what? And get your eyes as marketers on 
everything is nitty gritty as the welcome email and the early training content and the QBR deck that your CSMs are using um, every quarter and so on, you will find gaps, I guarantee you, and some will horrify you. It did me, you know, when I first started this exercise probably three years ago. And when I looked at what, even just the messaging of what we as a company were saying post-sale, it just didn't match up to the promise we were putting in the market on the front end. Nobody intends for that to happen, but when you are in, a, in an organization that is little silos and you don't have marketing oversight kind of over all of it. And I'm not suggesting that CX reports into marketing. I'm suggesting that marketing has a voice at the table to make sure there's messaging consistency, look and feel, payoff, and that your CX folks, as they are interacting with your customers over time, have all that latest and greatest awesome content and value messaging and other customer examples really ingrained in their brains to give that back to the account. I love both of those uh, techniques. I think those are great pieces of advice. You know, it's funny, recently we've been working on a new podcast with a couple partners. And one of the things that we got feedback on, they were laughing because apparently like we say sausage making a ton because like, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into like creating something or like an implementation. And uh, they're saying that like, yeah, we all joke internally that, you know, every time uh, Ian mentioned sausage making that somebody needs to drink or something like that. But I was thinking about how funny that is because it's not something I would have ever thought would be something you would position pre-sale as marketing, right? Because you're like, well, you don't want to talk about that there's a lot of sausage making that goes into something. You want to talk about, you know, like hitting the easy button. But then it's like you have this implementation is not the reality of why someone buys. When in reality, it would have been 10 times more painful to go with someone else. But this is a very complicated thing. I think that you're exactly right to take a step back and to look at that process as the CMO, as the marketing team, and as the demand gen team to say like, what does it actually feel like post-purchase? And then what are the messaging that our team is sharing and there and we're receiving is hugely critical. Yeah, you'll get all kinds of insights, no doubt. And, you know, we are starting to look at things also in our business. We look at account engagement measures. We're a Pardot shop and have a variety of other things in our tech stack. And we're really able to see at the account level how much engagement we're getting for new logo we're implementing that on the customer side. And one of the insights that's quite interesting is, you know, you can see surges in engagement and you think, yay, yay for us, you know, this customer's happy. But the absence of engagement is also an important signal, right? And so that is something that we're starting to incorporate into our risk profile for companies that might have a propensity to churn. So, you know, I think those are all important things to be looking at and, you know, kind of through the whole customer life cycle. Okay, let's get into our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. So we're going to get into your playbook. You're going to open it up and tell us about the tactics that help you win. The first question, what are the three channels or tactics that are your uncuttable budget items? You're on the island. You only get three things. And these are the three budget items that you get. Well, I'll say them and then we can drill in. One of them is all things to do with the website. It's the front door to the company. And especially now in COVID, it's the only way that you can guarantee interactivity with your audience. So all things related to the website, a derivative of that would be having a really great search engine optimization strategy. You know, you can cut your digital ad campaign, for example, if you need to, but you really need to make sure that you're appearing in relevant searches and so on. 
Um, second one, I think I would say is really our account-based tactics, which are very much orchestration of email, phone calls, social touch, and ads all together and orchestration between marketing, SDRs, and sales, and CX for that matter, when it comes to existing accounts. So maybe I'm cheating a little here, Ian, with packing too many subtopics in, but... I was just going to say you're cheating for number two. And, and same thing for number one, honestly, too, because the website, there are so many elements to a website, but it is your front door. I think those would be my two. I, I don't know that I can pick a third that would rank as highly. If we were out of quarantine and, and everyone was sort of back to normal, I I'd say field events would probably be my third and figuring out a virtual way to replace that so you can really get that human to human interaction would probably be my third if I had to pick. Yeah, cool. Let's let's drill in a little bit. Um, you know, you mentioned conversational earlier. Everyone can go check out insideview.com, go check out their conversational. It's great. I love that the three <laughs> options are talk to a real person, discuss pricing, and show me a live demo. It's like if you are looking to buy right now, bam, there it is for you. And if you're the type of person who does not want to be talking to a bot, boom, you have that option there. And I just, I love, I love that. I think you all have a very slick website in general, but it is very much like that is the front door, right? It's like you have the opportunity for people to talk right there. You know, and what you're talking about is this transformation that's happening all around how you capture leads, right? And for so many years, we all would debate about gating, right? When do you use a form? How long is your form? What content should be gated? What content should be not gated? And so on, right? And we all know that the buyer stays anonymous for a bloody long time, right? It's like 70% of the way through their journey before they make themselves known. And we've been fighting that tide, right? Trying to trick them by like hiding our very best asset behind a form. And then they fill it out with a Mickey Mouse email, right? So that dance and that kind of nonsense has been going on forever. I think what conversational has done and I so much prefer that term instead of saying chatbot because chatbot implies a robot, right? And sure, you do have some robotic things that are super fast, right? If somebody says, hey, I'm, you know, I'm a bank, you can route them really fast to your banking info as an example without having a human. But most of our conversations are happening human to human. And that is allowing us to ungate lots and lots of our stuff. And we're still in the process of kind of removing it everywhere and making sure the lead sources are tuned in you know, we're, we're implementing some new technology to do reverse IP lookup and de-anonymize the web traffic so we have a better idea of who's looking at what and so on. But the conversation, being able to meet that person right where they want to meet and have the conversation they want to have, right? They might want to talk about pricing right away, which always makes our salespeople squeamish, I guess would be the right word, because they want to control that conversation. But guess what? The buyer just wants to know, hey, is this in my ballpark? Is this bigger than a bread box? You know, how should I be thinking about this before they even want to have a conversation? There's one really interesting thing that's starting to happen, Ian, with our use of conversational. And I'm excited about it, but it's also a nightmare. And it goes like this. People are staying anonymous as they normally do. They come to our website. They're still anonymous. They get in a conversation with one of our SDRs. And it turns out they're very qualified. They're ready to go. Opportunity gets opened by that SDR. So yay for us, right? We've opened a 50K opportunity. We've got a meeting booked with the sales rep. That person was never a lead. They've never been a lead. They've never filled out a form. We don't have their email. I mean, now we do because they're an opportunity. 
So that whole notion of being able to have full funnel metrics just goes flying out the door. So what do you do? You know, do you not have the conversational? I don't think so, right? Because normally that person might have waited a while until they were ready to have a conversation. So it's really interesting to see this dynamic happening. And I think we've got three opportunities now, just in the last couple of months, that have come from anonymity to opportunity with quote one touch. Now we know that that person and people at that account have been all over our website before that. We know from account stamping and such, but in terms of our metrics and conversion rates, it's all screwed up, right? <laughs> so I think it's a brave new world, uh, you know, that we're moving towards and trying to harness really what's going on. Totally. I love that. And it is such a dynamic space right now because yeah, why would you, the idea of like gates, right? When does it feel good to be behind a gate? When you're keeping other people away, right? Not the alternative, right? It's like you want to be the person at the party who's inviting other people in, not the person who's waiting outside. Why would we create barriers for folks to be able to get that information, especially when we know who these people are anyways, right? Especially if they're like our top accounts, we know we know who they are. And you think about how marketers have been incented traditionally, right? Lead quantity, lead quality, visitors to your website, all the rest of it. So we ourselves, based on how we are incentive, have created these blockers. And I think when you remove that and you align around opportunity, which is what I've been advocating for a long time, aligning around pipeline, then you're incented to get to that opportunity regardless of how it comes in. And you need the instrumentation and the systems and a really good process in order to be able to track what you can track. So I really think that we're seeing a transformation happening and it's just accelerating. It was, you know, it's happening anyway, but it's accelerated 10x, you know, with what's happening in the world with the pandemic today. And so much, you know, all our business is being done online and over the phone via video chat and podcasts like this. So adapting to that is really key. And so you mentioned SEO. Um, how does SEO play into that piece? you're going to spend an uncuttable budget item is making sure that you have quality SEO and content to push people towards. Well, in that kind of exact scenario you're talking about, if we're putting people, you know, content in front of them that really gets them to move and be interested and that's not gated and people are interested and they read four or five or six things, it seems like, okay, you know, they're pushing themselves down the funnel. So how do you invest in SEO content then? Are you investing in like just making sure that the content is hyper relevant and you have an SEO team that manages the implementation of that or how, how do you do it? So we've done a couple of things with SEO to build on top of what we had been already doing. So table stakes are making sure that we really understand the keywords that are involved, right? And some of that's our own hypothesis. And then a lot of it's testing, right? We see what keywords are drawing people in and that is table stakes. And of course, when we write content, we have an SEO partner outside the company that SEOizes, uh, they're called ACE Rankings, are really terrific, that makes sure that all of the backend tagging and such is set up correctly. So it's not just keywords in the content, but all of the, you know, kind of the guts behind the scenes of how that content manifests on the site. So that's been going on, you know, all along. But now with different technology, we can get even richer information and more dynamically about what's bringing people to the site, what terms they're using, weave in intent, right? So we can not only look at the fit, but the intent of what they're 
shopping for. And then we've done some other techniques like, and this is such an easy one that I'm, I kind of feel stupid that we only just did this recently. We took all of our content that had been locked up in slides, downloadable PDFs, case studies, white papers, all the rest of it that we spend so much time and money on. And we essentially replicated that same content in web pages themselves. So you can still download the asset and share it, and it's a beautifully laid out PDF, but the same content is searchable now in the site. And that has made a big difference because now there's tons more that's indexable, right, by the engines. It's easier to find. We probably wouldn't have done that back when we gated most things, right? When we had forms in front of everything, why would you do that? But now that's a kind of low-hanging fruit technique. And then finally, how it relates to conversational, our SDR is essentially uh, qualified as the conversational tool that we use, as I mentioned. And there's a kind of console view that the SDRs see. They can see when visitors come to the site, they can see what brought them there, whether it was a, you know an ad asset, let's just say on Google or LinkedIn, or whether it was an organic search, they can see what those terms were so that when they start the conversation with that person, they can meet them at the topic level of what that person was interested in. So let's say somebody was searching on CRM data quality, they can immediately suggest content that could be useful to them, ask them relevant questions and so on. So it's all kind of woven together. But you know that SDR is not going into the conversation blind. They're going in. It's almost like if you've ever been at a like really high-end hotel and you know the people have like the little earpieces in where they greet you at the door and it's like hello Mr. Ian welcome back to the Ritz Carlton and then by the time you make it to the front desk they're saying hello Ian again right and how's your family and how's your dog so and so and all this and you're like wait a second how did this all happen well it all happened because they had data about you and records about you and they transferred in real time as you were walking through the lobby it's sort of the equivalent only digital I absolutely love that you ungated all of that and repurposed it for the site. I think that's such a brilliant tactic. And again, like you said, it sounds so, no kidding, you should do this. Right, it's kind of like, duh, of course you should do that, but you're not gonna do that if everything's gated, of course not. So, you know, I, I really encourage people to really think about, okay, what should we be doing here? And, you know, you replace all your forms with conversational and invest in really good process. It, it may seem so obvious, but one little thing that we have done that's been very impactful is, you know, we have our list of target accounts that are very, important to us. And we load that into the conversational system. So let's just say Acme, when they come to the site and we know through variety of things, not just reverse IP lookup, which is a little sketchy these days because of COVID, everyone's going through, you know, God knows what server, but there's other techniques, right? That you can figure out how to de-anonymize. Visitor comes from Acme, immediately that visitor traffic is enriched at the account level inside Salesforce CRM so that we know exactly what SDR has been working that account so far. And that way, an alert goes to that same person, let's just say Steven in this case. Steven gets the alert that Acme's on the site. So, you know, normally you could just round robin that, right? And whatever SDRs up would have the conversation, but wouldn't it be so much better if within 10 seconds of that person being on the site, Stephen knew so that he could meet that account. Hey, how are you guys? I've been talking to so-and-so and so-and-so your account already. What can I help you with? It's a, a highly personalized experience, but really requires that you hooked up the back end, uh, you know, really in a very specific way. So this all sounds great. But I'm imagining the CMO that's listening that is thinking, Tracy, yeah, you're awesome, except my 
VP of sales has had a thousand leads as the target for us. And 500 of our leads come from the ultimate best checklist of all time getting downloaded. Every month, like clockwork, we get 500 leads on the ultimate best checklist. So what is going to happen when I go to them and go, hey, we're ungating this. And now our leads go from a thousand a month to 22. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're pointing out a very good point and one that I have run into a million times. I think what you have to do is share with sales the vision of what could be and then take some incremental steps to show them that those 22 are actually real life opportunities that have a propensity to close as opposed to 500 that are wasting sales reps time. You know, my husband is a sales VP, as you know, and one of the things that he says all the time is the only thing a salesperson can control is their time. So if they are chasing a bunch of leads that are tire kicking, not necessarily qualified, aren't going to be available for another six months to 12 months, why in the world would you want them spending their time on that? Wouldn't you rather they spend time on the things that are that have a propensity? So you got to take some incremental steps I would recommend starting with an account list and really showing that you can have conversational targeting for those folks, bring them into the site, route them the right way, give them some white glove treatment before you turn off your number one asset, right? That's risky. And, you know, I hate to say this, but when sales is unhappy, marketing leadership is at risk. There's no question about it, right? And, you know, the average tenure of a CMO is like, what, 18 months now? It used to be 24 months. Why is that? Well, half the time it's because sales is unhappy and we get blown out of our job. The other half of the time we get recruited out, right? It's just (laughs) the way it goes. So, you know, really making sure that sales understands and has buy-in into your strategy is really important. But we, we have to educate them. It's the only way it works. And being transparent is really important. That's challenging because sales often does not have the time and the attention span to really go through the nitty gritty details with you. So that's why I think aligning around something like pipeline is a really important thing. Wean them off of lead quantity wean them on to opportunity quality and doing that over, let's say, a couple of quarters. And, you know, some of this is process oriented and reporting and some of it is just good old fashioned people buy-in and education. It sounds easy. It is not easy. (laughs) Believe me. Yeah. The best CMOs are the uh, offensive coordinator for the football team, right? That's very well said. Yeah. Yeah. You either get promoted to head coach within 18 months or the head coach fires you in 18 months and there's kind of no in between. So, you know, another point of, you know, that sales marketing alignment nirvana there is owning the SDRs. Everybody has a take on this and you feel strongly about SDRs. Why is SDRs something so critical to the demand gen team and marketing function? If you believe that sales and marketing should align around pipeline, around opportunity, then marketing really needs the responsibility and the accountability of everything that leads up to that op, which includes sales development reps. Now, I've worked in environments where that team reported into sales and three or four times now I've been responsible for that team. When I first came to Inside View, it worked inside of sales. There was a small business SDR team and an enterprise SDR team. 
And right away, not only did I sit with that team and, and just make sure I really understood what was going on, I embraced their leader and she started coming to my staff meetings and all the rest of it. And it just sort of organically made sense over time. I can also argue, however, why you would want to keep the SDR team in sales. If you believe that the path or the feeding ground or the farm team, that might be a better way to say it, of your sales reps is SDRs. You know, you bring in SDRs into the company, they go through, let's say, 18 months, and then they're ready to be promoted. You can imagine why the SDRs themselves would feel like, well, hey, I want to report into sales because I want that relationship. You can overcome that piece of it. The other component that, you know, besides the pipeline alignment is process. Now, we all know a lot of the things you and I have been talking about in this call is very process heavy, right? Just making sure things are defined the right way and coded the right way and passed on quickly. And our SDR leader, Kelsey, it, her mantra is speed to lead. Get on top of it as quickly as you can and you know, really embrace that customer like they're coming in the front door and they're your, your very favorite person in the world. And you know, all of that is something that marketing is really designed to teach the process and the message. And those two things are so critical for SDRs. And then the rapid iteration on what's working and not working happens much more quickly when you're part of the same organization. I like to position it to my sales leaders as, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm providing you demand gen as a service. This is a service to you to deliver opportunities. And part of that is sales development. And if I was going into a new organization where the SDR team was part of sales, I would advocate for moving it but, you know, you don't want to make it seem like a territory grab. So the best way to do it is essentially act as if you're all part of the same organization and you become very transparent about things related to your process, related to your scoring and all the rest of it. And then it just sort of organically happens. And I'm happy to say that in our company, we have a phenomenal track record now of ramping SDRs quickly, getting them to really high value. I mean, we have some that are delivering a million and million in pipeline every quarter, which is probably 30% percent higher than what their goal actually is. They've become incredibly value-added members and then promoting out and not just into account executive roles, but into customer success as an example, if their skills are more suited to the more nurturing style. So I think that we really need to see this as an extension of the demand gen function. About two years ago, I was in a CMO roundtable uh, at the Serious Decisions event and their CMO at the time, Jay Gaines, was leading a conversation about this very topic. And I asked him, hey, do you guys have any data on where this org typically lives? And at that point in time, their data said that 54% of the time, um, the marketing team owned the sales development function. And so that's a coin flip, right, Ian? I mean, it's like, okay, so half the time it's in one team, half the time it's in another. However, their data also showed that the most rapidly growing companies had it as part of marketing. So I think that's an interesting data point and really one to consider. I have a whole presentation on this I gave at the Growth Marketing Conference last fall. We can put a link in the show notes to that because it really helps you figure out where should this fit and you know what are some of the ways I can come across making that decision. I absolutely love it. And you have a secret weapon when it comes to developing your SDRs in a partner called SV Academy, which is sv.academy for our listeners who want to check it out. Can you share more about this group? Oh, yeah, for sure. So, you know, most of us have been struggling with recruiting SDRs 
um, ramping them, retaining them, right? That's one set of problems. The other set of problems, which is really becoming, I would say, table sticks for companies is we want to expand the diversity in our companies. We want more women. We want more folks who are not white. And we also want diversity of thought, right? First-generation college graduates, as an example, right? We don't want everybody to look and sound and come with the same background. So those two competing forces have come together in SV Academy, and their CEO, Raheem Fazel, has a dream of putting a million people from non-traditional tech backgrounds to work in tech sales in the next 10 years. And SV Academy essentially creates job-ready SDRs. So they take people from all walks of life um, and put them through a 12-week, essentially, SDR boot camp where they learn about prospecting, they learn about lead-to-revenue processes, they learn scripts, they learn how to handle objections, and they learn some tools, you know, how to use CRM, how to use video, and, and so on. So when they come to you as candidates, they already have this foundation. And then what you have to do is teach them your company, but you're not teaching them how to be an SDR which is so amazing. And our entire SDR team is comprised of SV Academy graduates. And, you know, SV Academy places these people with them. They make their money on that placement. So it's a, a very nice reciprocal thing. We're just about to hire five more. And, you know, we call up SVA and say, hey, guys, we're ready to hire more. They'll send us over 15 to 20 candidates and we'll put them through the interview process and we'll come up with five offers in a matter of a couple of weeks. We are finding that these folks are ramping very reliable very reliably in three months, which is really great. And the other part of it is these are not all new college grads. Some of them are, um, but many of them have come from adjacent markets where they have sales experience. Like for example, one of our top new SDRs, she just started in March. She was an Apple sales rep one of the genius level sales reps in their Manhattan Fifth Avenue 24-hour store. She'd done that for five years and she'd been trying to get into tech and she kept being told, well, no, you don't have tech experience. Well, she didn't have software technology SaaS experience, but she sure as heck knew how to sell technical products, right? And deal with customers and she'd been customer facing all this time and so on. Teach her how to be an SDR and she's going to get promoted out into the sales org in a matter of a year probably. So if you think about that population and, you know, many of these folks are first generation college graduates also, which brings an entirely different level of motivation and background and mindset, growth mindset that is just so key. And it's automatic diversification based on how they pull in all of their fellows. So, you know, I am really excited about that. And with so many of us wanting to diversify our workforces, I often hear from other leaders, yeah, but you know, the candidate pool, all I get is white men. So, you know, that's what I'm hiring. And it's like, no, 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 you just need to know where to hunt, right? Where do you go find these candidates? You partner with someone like Silicon Valley Academy. So SV.Academy, go check them out. And I, I couldn't be happier with the results. Let's get into our next segment, The Dust Up. Uh-oh. Here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. This is about healthy tension. And that's maybe with your board, with your sales team, with your competitors, or just anyone else. Have you had a memorable dust-up in your career? Oh, God, yeah. I have a doozy. I mean, I have a bunch, but the biggest doozy was I had taken my very first CMO job. 
So this was about like 11 years ago now. And I joined a software company that was about 15 million in revenue, unstructured database, highly technical product. I had worked for the CEO before and I had known that he had chewed up and spit out, I think it was four predecessors in the matter of like two and a half to three years. And there's a story about why all that happened and so on. But I had my eyes wide open about that. And I had met the CRO and I thought, oh yeah, I can work with this guy. You know, we'll be simpatico. Things will work out fine. The mistake I made was I didn't meet his lieutenants. And there were four regional sales VPs, each one of them, or sorry, not regional, they were industry specific uh, sales VPs, public sector, financial services, media, and then a catch-all that we called enterprise. And those folks, they happened to be all men, really hated marketing. And I, you know, I can't understate the detest that they had for marketing. They didn't trust marketing. They, there had been such turnover in, in that CMO ranks that they had literally told their teams, like, don't pay attention to marketing. We're on our own. And I didn't know any of that. You know, I knew that there had been turnover in the CMO seat, but I didn't realize the the level of detest and mistrust that there was. And I, I, you know, I'm like second day on the job and these four folks all came to corporate and I walk into the room to meet them and I'm all psyched, right? I got my very best outfit on and I'm, you know, smiling my big smile. You walk over and they're all sitting at this table and they wouldn't even acknowledge my presence or shake my hand. I am not kidding. It was just like the most awful experience. And my life sort of flashed before me like, oh my God, what do I do, right? Like, do I just kind of walk away and try and figure out a way to build the relationship? And some voice just came up in me and I just got all big sister on them. And I, I remember saying something to the effect like, seriously, this is how it's going to be. You guys aren't even going to look at me. You're not going to have the courtesy to shake my hand. Like, I get it, you guys. Marketing has let you down. I get that you don't trust the organization. But if you don't work with me and agree to give me a chance, you're going to be talking to number six in a matter of six months. So what's it going to be? (laughs) And that was the right attitude to take with them because it kind of, you know, embarrassed and ashamed them just a little, opened up the door enough for them to see that I had a backbone, but that I was there to partner with them. And it took a little while to show them, you know, that marketing could deliver value. But I did that with by listening, right? It was like, what do you guys need? What do you think you need? Where are your problems? And it turned out that one of their biggest problems was reference selling. And, you know, we sold very, very large deals and where, you know, references that looked like the same industry and uh, leadership profile and project type and so on was really, really critical. So that was the first thing we tackled. And then that went a long way to repairing the relationship. But that was an astounding, astounding moment to me. A great dust up. I would not want to uh, to cross you, Tracy. That is for sure. I would definitely, it could be, uh, no matter what the conversation is, I'm raising my hand to, to shake your hand as quick as possible because I don't want to be on the other end. <laughs> Well, you know, I have really high empathy for sales leaders. And I think it goes back to my time as an SDR when I was 16, no kidding, because I got exposure to a whole variety of sales leaders in that company. A lot of them would come over to my family's house on Friday nights because my dad happened to work in that same business. That's how I got my how I got the door opened for me there. So these sales leaders would come over and, and my parents would grill steaks and you know they would drink their martinis and their beers and, and commiserate with one another about their history 
hideous travel schedule and the end of quarter pressure and all the rest of it. And I just really came to have very high empathy for what it takes to carry a number and have more than half your compensation tied to your own performance. And fast forward now to my husband as a sales leader and, it, and this is a, a little known secret, Ian. He was one of those sales VPs who wouldn't shake my hand. Is that true? Really? 100%. 100%. Um, that's how we met. <laughs> yep. That's how we met. And we became really good friends and then we fell in love. Um, and so 10 years later, <laughs> yeah, we're together. That's the punchline of the story. It's almost like a movie script. Uh, no kidding. That's great. Well, I... That we'll have to work on that next. The Tracy movie script where uh, where you're combating evil sales reps, and then you know, and then you turn them. So it's it's good to go, like a secret agent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you really, I think marketers have to be diplomats. You really have to use your diplomacy skills to listen to sales, get inside their heads, and then figure out how not only to help them be successful and do programs that they think will work, but then also prescribe, you know, what's going to improve things at the same time. And it's a very delicate dance, not to be an order taker, but to be service oriented at the same time. It's a really important skill. Okay, let's get into our quick hits. These are quick questions, quick answers, just like how quickly you could talk to someone on your website with qualified.com which you know this, you're a qualified customer, so I don't need to tell you. But for our listeners, go to qualified.com. They're the presenting sponsor of the show. We love them. Check them out. Your prospects are on your site right now. You can talk to them in real time, qualified.com. Quick hits. Tracy, are you ready? I'm ready. Number one, what hobby or habit have you picked up during shelter in place? I have become the master at lemon cake. I think I'm on my ninth one. It's just yellow box cake mix with the zest of six lemons, ideally Meyer, and lemon juice instead of water and an additional egg. And it's fabulous. My mother made lemon squares just last night for her birthday, which is funny because she made it, but I love a good lemon treat. If you weren't a CMO, what do you think you'd be doing? Oh my gosh. I have mad love for Rachel Maddow. I would so want to be a journalist, somebody who's studying politics and social issues, and then bringing that story back to a community. Yeah, I I fangirl on her big time. So I'd want to be her. What about a favorite book or podcast or show that you've been binging? Oh my gosh, there are a lot. My husband and I are really into right now the Perry Mason uh, uh, redo. That's I think it's on HBO. It is so good. It's so good. And it's beautifully shot. I mean, the sets are amazing, but it's really fun to have this new storyline, a reimagining of the Perry Mason defense attorney origin story. And Matthew Reese is so good in it. I mean, it's the, the, the characters are great. It's really a good show. I couldn't agree more. It's unbelievably good. Two of my favorite actors on, uh, on the planet are, are the two leads. Um, and I, I can, can never pronounce her name, but uh, Tatiana, like Maslany or whatever, uh, who plays in Orphan Black is like, she's such a great actress. And um, which one is she? Is she, De- is she Della? She's the, yeah, the blonde lead for. Oh, the evangelist. Yeah, the evangelist. The evangelist. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's really good. 
yeah, her uh, that show Orphan Black. She plays like six different characters that are all her. It's crazy. Oh, okay, didn't know that. Yeah, you should check out Orphan Black. It's great if you like her. It's it's a great show. I'll do that. Anyways, not a quick answer on my part, but I just I love that's so good. <laughs> okay, how about do you have a favorite quote or phrase or something that gets you going, gets you excited? There's music that does. I would say. And it, it all goes back to the soundtrack between the summer of before freshman year in college. In fact, I started a LinkedIn thread asking people, you know, what was their anthem music that summer? Because the comedian Chris Rock has this awesome saying that basically says, you know, the music that you love when you're 15, 16, 17 years old is the music you'll love for the rest of your life. And, and for me, it's Prince and the Purple Rain album. That was the summer of 1984, uh, summer before I went to Michigan uh, for undergrad. And, you know, there's the Let's Go Crazy song is really amazing. And Baby, I'm a Star. Those two just really get my heart pumping. You are a founding member of Women in Revenue, an amazing organization. I don't know when I became a subscriber, but the monthly uh, magazine is great. Everything is great. Everyone should check out Women in Revenue. It's just womeninrevenue.org. But I have to ask, what's next? It seems like there's just so much on the horizon for Women in Revenue. It really is. And, you know, we started as kind of a small but mighty organization in the fall of 2018. And in the last six months, membership has exploded to more than 2,600 across the country. And, you know, the, the pandemic has driven membership. You know, we have members now all over the country and North America, in fact, so we have quite a few members in Canada and words getting around, right? So this is a great community for, for women like me and women like a lot of your readers um, and listeners. We, um, we have a great magazine and very large quarterly events. In fact, the next one is coming up September 10th, and I'm putting that together. That's all about diversity and revenue. And we have a mentor program. And so not only do we offer free mentorship, but a call out to you personally and all of your listeners to become mentors. And you know, you don't have to have 20 years of experience to be a mentor on a topic. And it's a really great way to give back and also a great place to recruit, right? Back to that diversity. We all want to have more women in our organizations and especially in leadership. And that's a stated goal of many CEOs. Come check out Women in Revenue. It's a great place to post jobs and really network. Last question. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? The question that I wish people would ask more often is what motivates you today versus earlier in your career. And for me, it's making things grow. I really turned a corner, let's say in the last three years, kind of after the time that I wrote my book, but also just as I've gotten more involved in organizations like Silicon Valley Academy and Women in Revenue and, and Inside View customers, helping people grow, expand their horizons, helping find and develop the next generation of great marketers is really the thing that gets me really fired up. Well, that's it. That's all we got for today. Tracy, thanks so much for joining as always. You know, our listeners should check out InsideView.com. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? No, just thank you. You're really doing a service with Demand Gen Visionaries. I think it's great. There's so many good marketing podcasts, but they're very broad, right? So concentrating, you know, on this particular topic is really, really key. Yeah, well, we love doing it and our uh, our guests and, and listeners are, are awesome. So thanks to you, Tracy. You're the best and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Ian. 
Manjen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.